Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Uh, Joining me on the programme today on what is a warm but rainy summer morning here in the capital is David Tompkinson. Uh, David is a director at And Partnership, a leading organisational leadership development consultancy. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a pleasure having you, David. Uh, not the nicest day for it, but luckily we're inside and away from the rain. Um, <laughs> normally, I think um, we would start by sort of talking about sort of leadership more broadly, but I think it would be remiss of me not to sort of address the context in which we're having this conversation, because um, we are recording this podcast in late July 2021, of course. So even though, as the listeners will know well, social restrictions around the COVID pandemic have now gone in England, we're still somewhat within the grip of the health crisis, aren't we? And that's now been the case for the best part of the last 16 months. So going all the way back to March 2020, when this really started to take a toll on our daily lives, um, how has this affected you and affected your business, would you say? Um, well, it's certainly been a, a very weird 15 months for all of us, I think, um, I can uh, safely say. But from our point of view, it was we've never had a period like it in our 18-year history. Uh, most companies say are saying that. And I think, you know, the, the world kind of has changed in so many ways since then. How it affected us at the beginning was um, within three days, we had a completely empty order book, uh, which we've never had in 18 years, I'm glad to say. Uh, but suddenly we were facing, uh, looking at a completely empty uh, calendar. And uh, it was probably one of the scariest times in our, in our history because uh, obviously nobody was doing face-to-face training, and that was probably 95 96% of our, of our work. So uh, we realized very rapidly that we had to do something uh, big and quick. So uh, we spent the time that we weren't doing the work that we had, had planned to do to um, put all of our products online. And we did that in about a three- to four-week period, which was, which was amazing uh, that our guys worked so hard to do that. And um, gradually, we noticed then we had sort of a really tricky three to six months between March and the late summer. And then gradually, we saw people saying, this isn't going to go away. This isn't a quick fix. So we need to do training and development. So let's start looking at doing it online. Can it be done? Is it as effective? And uh, and they rapidly realized that, that it was almost as effective by doing it online. And sort of from September, October onwards, We've seen a very sharp increase in sales and, uh, and delivery, thankfully. And we finished the year about uh, on par, which was great, having seen how bad it was in the, in the first three months. Uh, and now this, this year is looking very positive. So it's quite interesting, the unintended consequences, which a lot of people are telling us have happened as a result of the pandemic. Mm. Obviously, it's, uh, it's been tragic, the, uh, the, the, sort of the, the illness and the loss of life, but coming out as well as that, has been some of the positives from the from the pandemic, which I guess there's always pluses and minuses in uh, in anything. And um, certainly, one of them for us has been that people can do it do it quicker online. They can make decisions quicker. 
they can do bite size online. They haven't got to give up a whole day or a whole half day. Um, and with people working from home, it's much easier than trying to grab, get sort of 12, 15 people from all over the country to come to one central venue. Mm. So there's been some positives coming out of it for us um, since then, but it was a pretty tricky time, I think. And given what you've sort of learned about working practices in that sense, um, are you expecting that with restrictions now gone for the time being in England, that that sort of face-to-face delivery is going to come back? Or are you very much thinking now, online has been a real success, let's make this sort of part and parcel more of the kind of things we're doing day to day? Yeah, it's definitely speeded up uh, blended learning, as they called it in our industry, which, mm. which a lot of people were asking for before, but didn't really know what it meant, I don't think. Um, and, and suddenly in sort of four weeks, <laughs> the, other, the other phrase that they used a lot of was agile working. Um, and within four weeks, obviously, it, it had to be agile because there was no other alternative. Um, what I, We're seeing a few little face-to-face coming back. But if I was a betting man, I would say we'll probably only ever get back to 70, 30 virtual face-to-face, maybe 60, 40. Um, a lot of companies are saying we don't need to. Um, we just don't want to, we don't want the travel expenses. We don't want to affect the climate in the way it was doing. So we're going to, we're going to maintain this. Um, so yeah, I don't think we'll ever go back to completely face to face. And obviously I appreciate working with a lot of businesses that you might not sort of be affected directly by this problem, but um, the sort of digital divide that's kind of come about, um, not because of the pandemic, but it's kind of been laid bare by the circumstances that we found ourselves in. Um, If we're all going to benefit from blended learning sort of across all sectors and in all contexts moving forward, I suppose bridging that digital divide and making sure that everybody has access to sort of speedy Wi-Fi and um, smart devices as well, I suppose, that's going to be a huge part of that sort of build back better agenda that the government's currently trying to push forward, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it it does need to because we do still have uh, technology issues when we are um, when we're doing the workshops, some people's, uh, as you said, Wi-Fi isn't strong enough where they live or the packages they've got uh, don't deliver the, the, the bandwidth or the speed to be able to uh, sustain a Zoom or a Teams call for, for a long period. So we need to increase the uh, quality and speed of the broadband, I think, across the country. Um, and, and also, so many companies have done a fantastic job in getting their workforce to work from home and very, very fast and in very difficult circumstances. And um, I think, you know, now they've done that and they've invested in this, they're going to want to keep that going for some of the week. What we're finding is quite a demand for some hybrid working leadership development Mm. because leading hybrid teams is a very different proposition to leading teams face-to-face. And um, so so that's quite an interesting trend that we're noticing. But definitely I think it needs that digital emphasis, I think. Yeah, and I think you're very right when you say there that when it comes to sort of leading a team remotely or leading a hybrid team, it almost sort of warrants a change in leadership style, doesn't it? Um, Especially when it comes to sort of managing and detecting sort of mental health and well-being discrepancies, because there's quite a lot that you might sort of see and detect in a face-to-face in-person situation. And the nuances of that maybe don't quite carry over as well through a Zoom or a Teams call, do they? So that's something for business leaders to really be aware of. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think uh, it, it's something which, yeah, what I noticed about the pandemic is that it has speeded up a lot of the topics we were talking about before. 
you know, whereas working from home was in some quarters, not all, but in some quarters was regarded as a bit of a, uh, a sort of, a, oh, you're working from home on Friday, are you? <laughs> um, before, mm. uh, it's now a very much accepted part of, of, of working practice. Mental health and well-being was kind of on the agenda, but it's just been ramped up big time as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I think what it's thrown up is some interesting different uh, challenges. So you mentioned the leading in a hybrid or remote working as one of them, definitely. The other one, I think, is is building and maintaining teams because it's very simple to um, – not very simple. It's very um, straightforward to, to know what you've got to do when you've got a team of people working around you in an office. But what we've noticed is that there's quite a demand for uh, team development as teams are coming back together following the relaxing of restrictions because they've got new members who've never met each other. Um, they've got people in the team who've been working very, very in, in, in quite a lot of isolation. And the team has become quite fractured. And how do you get that team working back together again when you possibly can't see each other very regularly? Uh, it's quite a challenge, I think, for leaders that we're we're getting quite a lot of demand for helping them with that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I suppose if you sort of knew each other pre-pandemic and you've had to rally together from afar, it can kind of strengthen the sort of human connection between two people from afar within that same team. But when you are bringing in people who've joined the team during this period, who sort of haven't been sort of around that kind of camaraderie, as you say, it it is difficult for them to integrate, isn't it? And so bringing them into that sort of culture in person as soon as possible and making them comfortable with their sort of colleagues, that's going to be massive for leaders, isn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And uh, just looking back over the course of the uh, the pandemic, you did mention as well that um, one of the real positives is that, you know, we kind of, it's accelerated a great deal of things such as that digital revolution. Um, it's accelerated all of the uh, the dialogue on mental health and well-being. So there are some positives to take out of it. But in terms of some of the things that we really learned from this that we've kind of used to sort of hone industry and take it forward, what are some of the key sort of takeaways from your point of view, David, that maybe sort of you've learned from the last 16 months? Um, well, I think I think the first one for me is uh, is probably the importance of purpose, and I think we've all suffered from this over the last fifteen months. Is that for many of us, uh, and I know, I know the country is in sort of a uh, a split in that in many many businesses have been hugely uh, impacted positively, and both in terms of busyness and in terms of sales. And then there have been many who, unfortunately, gone out of business or have still got loads of people on furlough. Um, but for, for, for many, many people, uh, a lot of their purpose has been taken away from them just by the nature of the restrictions that have had to be imposed. So uh, I think one lesson for me is, is how do you redefine your purpose when you are restricted and when you, do, when you can't um, go on holiday and you can't um, kind of live your life in the way that you had planned to do so? And, and I think many people we talk to uh, on our uh, programs are reevaluating that purpose. What's really important to me? So many people are, are reconnecting with family and spending time with children that they never got time to do before. So I think that's one of the one one, one big lesson. And, and, and much of the work that we do in the leadership space is, is very much around that finding the future you want to create, like getting in touch with your purpose. Why do I do what I do? And I think that's going to be even more important going forward, I think. Um, the second one is is probably around 
mental health and, and well-being, as, a, as you mentioned. Uh, and I think that the lesson for, for me is that, 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 that there, was, <laughs> there was a reason why, when it was called BDU legislation, if you remember when they first introduced it, when everybody was starting to use computers, mm. uh, there's a reason why that came into force, you know? And I think that spending all day staring at the screen uh, is very, very tiring and stressful. And we haven't properly evaluated that because it happened so quickly. And I think there's going to need to be a lot more work and studies on how to approach things if people have got an eight, nine, ten-hour day in front of the screen uh, and how many breaks they should have and, and how they should do that because it is causing, in, in our experience, a number of issues. Um, and, and eventually it will have some physical health issues as well. I was reading something the other day that said that you should look away from your screen for 30 seconds every 20 minutes and focus on something 20 feet away because otherwise your eyesight is going to be affected by just staring at the same thing, the same distance away from your eyes all the time. So it's, um, it's quite interesting some of the things that are coming out as unintended consequences, I guess. Um, and I think the third thing um, in terms of lessons that are starting to emerge is that there's been a big power shift um, between uh, organizations and their staff because suddenly everyone that possibly can has been allowed to work from home. And wrestling some of that power back is going to be quite tricky. So we've already had examples of staff refusing to travel into offices because they're too anxious with our clients, or staff saying, I'm not going to switch my camera on because I don't want you to see my home. Um, and, and that sort of power shift is making leaders very um, nervous about in, enforcing some of those things. So it, it's quite an interesting, you know, whereas before the organization was the, was the all-powerful being that determined what happened to its staff, mm. suddenly the staff have now got, got a kind of a chunk of power. And it's about how leaders manage that, I think, which is going to be quite, uh, quite key. Yeah, certainly is going to be um, an interesting challenge moving forward because I think you are very right. I think there are a lot of consequences that sort of come from that sort of power handover. But also... Mm. Despite the benefits of home working as well, there are sort of unintended consequences with blurring the, the sort of lines between work ho- uh, life and home life, I think. And as good as, of course, working from home may have been for the work-life balance, sometimes for certain individuals that isn't necessarily the best thing because it is difficult to sort of distinguish between the two and so having that office option for some might actually be a really really good thing because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach just working entirely from home is it no exactly and from a commercial property point of view firms can't afford to just suddenly have their offices sitting empty Um, and and from a team perspective they're going to want to get people together face-to-face occasionally um, you know, for team meetings and things. So, so yeah, I, I think it's it's going to be a mix. It's going to be a blend. Uh, for many people, they can't wait to get back in the offices. That's the uh, the point. Um, but for also for for some, they really don't want to go back in unless they're forced to. So it's uh, it's going to be quite interesting. It is, and looking ahead to sort of the next few months and what might come on the horizon, um, what are some of the priorities for the AND partnership, uh, David, over the course of the sort of next 12 months just before we finish up? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as hopefully we can sort of embrace the post-pandemic period and leave restrictions behind now? 
Yeah, I think the, the the big things for us really are consolidating what we've learned over the last 15 months about agile working, remote working, um, and, and running uh, products online, and really can really kind of um, use that to our advantage. What we've found is, is that we can get a product to market much faster with online working. So when we notice a trend, we can turn that into a product, and we tend to run uh, free tasters for people as part of our marketing strategy, just one-hour sessions where they just get a sense of who we are and what we do on a, on a particular topic. And we can turn one of those around in a matter of days now, whereas before it was hitting a venue, sending out invites. So it was like sort of six to eight weeks. So we're becoming much more flexible, much more agile, and I think we need to consolidate that and carry that on into uh, the next 12 months. Um, and... Um, I think we're going to have to uh, work with clients very differently. And uh, certainly, uh, the, the kind of the days of the very big project where people are spending kind of um, six figures on training and development over a, over a long period seem to be kind of um, changing. And the, the projects tend to be of a, of a much smaller and, and much more... Um, focused nature, if I can say that. So, mm. uh, so again, we're going to have to learn to take advantage of that and, and be able to, to, to work with more smaller projects rather than less bigger projects, I think, is a, is a big one for us. But, I mean, you know, touch wood and, and all the other superstitions, the business has, has coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we're one of the lucky ones. Things have, uh, have never looked so good for us at the moment. Mm. And um, we're just hoping upon hope that that continues and that uh, we're able to to, to, to kind of um, continue uh, making a difference to people as we've, uh, as we've been able to do over the last 18 years. Yeah, fingers crossed that that upward trajectory does continue. And I think, David, actually, because there's still a little bit of lingering uncertainty, it would actually be fantastic to even catch up in the next sort of seven or eight months at some point just to see sort of where we're at um, in terms of the sort of restriction side of things and how the business is getting on as well. And hopefully by then uh, we won't have gone backwards and there'll be some really positive news to share on the uh, the business point of view. Yeah, absolutely. We're delighted. I'd love to welcome you back in future, David. I've really, really enjoyed having you on the program. I'm sure the uh, the listeners share that sentiment as well. Um, it's been really nice sort of covering and having a little bit of a look at what's been going on in your line of work. And um, lastly, just before we do depart as well, uh, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on because we're not quite clear of all of this yet, but I'm pretty confident that we're sort of heading into better days, let's say. Yes, absolutely. Me too. And uh, just, you know, Thanks very much for having me today. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you, Scott. Likewise, David. And uh, it was a pleasure, of course, welcoming uh, David Tompkinson from Unpartnership onto the programme today, just for the listeners that are tuning into the programme. And I would also like to reiterate that message as well to all of you listening in. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others, even now restrictions are gone in England, because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, next up on the programme, of course, since we enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership within this Leaders' Council podcast, we'll be joined by England's 1960. FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero Sir Jeff Hurst. Of course, Sir Jeff is most well known as a former professional footballer for his exploits in the 1966 FIFA World Cup final, where he became the only man to score a hat-trick in that fixture. Um, he did that, of course, famously as England beat West Germany 4-2 after extra time to lift the Jules Rimet trophy. Um, so Jeff will be looking back at some of the highlights of his career and why leadership was so, so important.
difference in making those possible and also leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who have done all they can over a turbulent 16-month period for us all. Um, That will be coming up on the programme shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, uh, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time, and there's quite a bit of a joke about that, but there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened, the ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup, but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people, um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing, I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about uh, 
but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with, with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic.
Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. The managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your 
career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Lyons. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two footed. And I was maybe not as two footed as 
Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kind of put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, the Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23 24 games no 27 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, 
I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing all the videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was. Uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just setting balls out. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people... Um, Talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was, and they're the two things that really stick out for Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me what he was was a fantastic player he is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill discipline within his, his general life and you need at the top and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player but I compare him 
purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had so um, yes it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend, and, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably 
that's happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.